So open your Bibles to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews, chapter 11, specifically verses 24 through 27. So last week at the church down in Cary, the Shepherd's Church, they had a they had a missions conference, and it, it was extremely encouraging. Um, they had people come back from the from the field to talk and encourage and exhort uh, the local body of just how to be more mission minded globally, but then even in your neighborhood, how to be um, how to outreach, how to live intentionally. And it was really encouraging being here this morning for Sunday, uh, hearing Brian speak on evangelism, realizing that it's not about us and the people. It's there's something deeper, bigger going on. It's about glorifying our Savior. So anyway, at any good missions conference, you always have to hear some biographies because they are encouraging. So we heard ones like from um, William Carey or Nicholas Zinzendorf from the Moravians, uh, some of whom sold themselves into slavery to go and reach this unreached people group. Uh, you know, there's just these amazing stories, but one stood out because I thought it applied well to what we're talking about this morning, and it was the, a brief sketch of C.T. Studd. Many of you are probably familiar with Charles Thomas Studd, Englishman, uh, went to Cambridge, and he eventually became a missionary to China and then Africa. But the, inten- the important thing to remember about C.T. Studd and why this relates to our passage today about Moses is that he was an excellent uh, cricketer. Cricketer. It's probably good that Pete's not here because I'd mess it up, you know. <clears throat> so he played cricket. It was a sport. If you're not familiar, if we're all Americans, we don't know what that is. <clears throat> so he played cricket. He was extremely good. He won national, international uh, competitions. Uh, just... He had a lot going for him, but instead of pursuing that extremely fruitful, pleasurable life, which could have been okay, that wouldn't have been a sin, but instead of doing that, he and six others chose to go to China to minister, to reach the lost, and that was what you call the the Cambridge Seven, these seven just real hard-charging guys who gave up what they had, gave up the temporal pleasures of what they had to go and do something for the next life to come. So, and he said, you might be familiar with that passage, that famous quote that he says is, just one life will soon be passed, uh, only what's done for Christ will last. And that is, uh, it is encouraging, it's pithy, it's, it's good. But to elaborate, he said, I knew cricket would not last. And I knew the honor that cricket would bring wouldn't last either. Nothing in this world would. Only things done for the next would ultimately matter. Now, you had heard that I had just come from, that Caitlin and I had come from Russia before Carrie, and I just want to say this up front. This message and this passage of Scripture is not about you being faithful equals selling everything you have and moving somewhere else. That is not the case. Because if we're just going to limit being faithful to being missionaries, then you're going to miss a ton in your daily life, in your daily walk, both for evangelism and for your own personal walk with Christ. And this passage says a lot more than just sell what you have, go be a missionary somewhere. If you do want to do that, there's a huge country I'm familiar with that has 11 time zones that I'm sure would love to have you. But 
If you don't, listen still, okay? This says a lot more. All right. So, here's a roadmap for where we're going. First, before we jump in, anytime you do a a jump-in text, you know, I'm not working through this book, I kind of have to explain a little bit of the context in chapter 11 and 12. So we're going to explain a little bit of that. And then, you'll notice quickly that this passage is a lot about faith. This passage talks about faith quite a bit. So, we're going to talk about the essence of faith in chapter 11, verse 1. We're going to talk about the power of faith in our passage, verses 24 through 27, or the works of faith. And then, in chapter 12, verse 2, we're going to talk about the the object of faith. It's kind of a faith sandwich this morning, all right? And I pray that you'll be encouraged by it. All right, so, looking at chapter 11... You'll notice at first you have a lot of by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. We're talking about Moses this morning in in verses 24 through 27, but this author of Hebrews is writing to people, and he's illustrating a point with a lot of Old Testament characters. So you see characters like uh, Abraham, like Abel, like Enoch, like a Sidonian widow, if you're familiar with who that is, with Rahab. There's multiple Old Testament characters that, are, that he's um, referencing. And they do all have one thing in common. That one thing is not that they were all extremely brave. Or that they all gave up quite a bit. They all left some big pleasurable lifestyle. Not all of them had pleasurable lifestyles. It's not that they were uh, brave and they went through different exploits to uh, honor the Lord. Some big feat. That wasn't it either. The one thing that they have in common is faith. Was their faith. As you can see, it says, by faith Abel, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith Rahab. This section doesn't really say that they had faith, though, like it was a commodity. No, they did more than just have faith. They used faith. That's what that by faith means. It's by means of faith, Abel did something. By means of faith, Abraham did something. By means of faith. They exercised faith in making some big, hard choices. And they exercised faith in making some big, hard, uh, doing some big, hard things. For example, Noah exercised faith when he built an ark amidst the scoffing of wicked men, before rain had even come. By faith, Rahab, she exercised her faith when she betrayed her people to help the, to help the Israelites, to help God's people come in and conquer the land. By faith, the Gentile widow, Sidonian widow, gave up her last food to Elijah during amidst a horrible drought. Now, throughout this entire section of chapter 11, the author is going to show us by both definition and by example that faith intrinsically consists of both belief and action. Faith intrinsically consists of both belief and and action. It's not like, here's belief, and then if you want to make your faith meaningful, bolt on a little something extra, and then I know it's meaningful. No, intrinsically, you're going to have both. Look at chapter 11, verse 1, essence of faith. He says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen seen. 
Now, that doesn't say anything about what faith is supposed to do. It just describes what faith is. The supposed to do is going to come in just a second. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's sure. It's certain. It's not a hunch. And in faith is the conviction of things not seen. It's not a guess. In fact, in the Greek, that word conviction really intimates this, this uh, understanding of uh, objective evidence that convicts someone of a crime. The important part of that conviction is that it's not subjective. If it's the conviction of things not seen, it's objective evidence. It's objective. It's fact. We might not see it, but it's still fact, not a feeling. And we know that to be true, okay? We know that faith must include belief and action because it's so normal in our everyday life, okay? Imagine this. You know, you get a new job, right? And you get the, the acceptance letter. And the first thing you might do is put in your resignation letter. You're not at the office. You haven't got paid by the new guy yet. But you have something. You believe, you believe it's true, and now you're going to act on it. Or when you, uh, yeah, or if you got, buy a new house, you might, you know, at stop your renter's insurance from your apartment or start a homeowner's policy. You believe something's coming and you're going to act on it. Now, how foolish and how, honestly, not foolish, how illogical would it be for you to say that I have faith or I believe in the fact that I have a new job or I have a new house, but you keep living in your apartment or you keep staying at the last or your current job? It's not only like foolish, it's, it's illogical. It doesn't make sense. Faith is going to have to include both of those if it's real faith. Belief plus action. You act because you believe. If you don't act, if you don't do something, you don't believe. An idle faith is not a true faith. An idle faith is a false faith. So what's the point? I'm spending a lot of time on something as basic as faith. You know, we're, we're at a church, for goodness sake. You know, we, we're all, we all have faith. We all have faith in Christ. We all got that, got that. Let's move on. Well, I'm spending a lot of time on it because it's absolutely foundational to the rest of the message and honestly to the rest of our lives. I'm spending a lot of time on it because I think that when we equate faith with mere assent, I think it's going to wreak havoc on our lives as Christians. When we make faith to be mere assent or agreement with a doctrine, it's going to wreak havoc on our lives as Christians. It's going to wreak havoc on our zeal. It's going to wreak havoc on our testimony, on our love, on our joy. And when you make that swap, faith, true faith, for just mere assent, well, then you, that can even deceive people into thinking they're going somewhere they're not. They can deceive them into thinking they're saved, but they're not. Now, everyone in this room has been hearing amazing preaching for the past 16 years. So I think we're maybe aware of this. I'm just reminding you. And if people are new here, or maybe you haven't really thought about this, you have to realize this faith is going to do something in your life. And we're going to break that out more in just a little bit. Okay? So if you look at chapter 11, verse 1, and you look through the whole section of chapter 11, you could really kind of redefine or synthesize a better definition. You could say that faith is the certainty of an unobserved reality evidenced by what you do. Faith is the 
certainty of an unobserved reality evidenced by what you do. <clears throat> so keep that definition as we turn to our passage this morning. Go ahead and turn to chapter 11, verses 24. I might have to turn the page. We were just in 11, 1. Now we're, now we're back to our text. Chapter 11, verse 24, 27. So look, let's see what Moses does here. Because now the author is going to say, hey, Moses is going to represent this faith. And we'll talk later on about why, why and what we're talking about Moses. But let's look. So by faith, Moses, stop. All right, we just said by faith, right? So now we're going to hear what Moses is going to do. It's not going to say Moses is going to sit on an Egyptian chaise somewhere. He's going to actually do something now. So that we just talked about what faith is. So now immediately you're thinking, by faith, Something's going to happen. Someone's going to do something. He's going to do something. It's going to be probably important. So let's keep reading. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, stop again. I'm killing you. I'm sorry. When he was grown up, all right? So he is an adult now. This section, this little passage right there, that little phrase rather, is only there to uh, contrast the prior verse. You might have gone through Hebrews 11 and read through 11.23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, you might have thought, how in the world does Moses exercise faith when he's a kid? No, 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 that's not it, all right? In verse 23, Moses' parents are exercising faith. In verse 24, it says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up. That's just cueing us in. Okay, Moses, where in his life? When he's an adult. So Moses is the subject. He's the one who's going to be doing something by faith, okay? Here's what he did. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Do you ever read some passages and you just think, you don't need exposition. That's just so right to the heart, you know, like, oh man, that's so good. Well, I'm going to expose it anyway because that's what we're here for. <laughs> But so, so uh, meaningful, so stinging, so good, so good. So listen, Moses, what did he do? He refused and he choosed, all right? He was refusing something and he was choosing something. But what was he refusing and what was he choosing? Now, everyone here, I'm sure, is familiar with the basic overlying arc or the story of Moses. But I'm just going to go super quick through a, a a brief review so we can understand the weight of what he's doing. Because I don't think if we, get, if we don't get into Moses' mind right here, I don't think we're going to fully appreciate the choice he's making and how much faith is required in this decision. So let's just back up briefly, okay? Genesis 1, all the way to the beginning, all right? <laughs> in the beginning, God. Stop right there. What that means is this world had a beginning. Before this world began, someone named God existed. This God is eternal. He had no beginning. Our lives and everything in it has a start. So first thing, Genesis 1, God's eternal, all right? Genesis 12, let's jump a couple of chapters. Genesis 12, God promises Abraham. He comes to Abraham, the guy of Ur of the Chaldees, and he says, listen, I'm going to promise you something. I'm going to promise a land, a seed, and a blessing. The land of Canaan, seed, offspring, lots of family, and blessing. 
Fast forward a slight bit, Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham again. And now he's going to make that promise into a covenant. He's going to cut this covenant, inaugurate this covenant. You know that scene where Abraham takes the birds and they cuts them in half, cuts the animals in half, and the flaming torch and, the, and it goes through and the covenant's cut. Before God does that, he tells Abraham something important. He says, remember that offspring that I told you you were going to have? Well, and remember the land you had, too. I promised land and offspring, right? Well, your offspring are actually going to be in a foreign land for 400 years. And they're going to be afflicted. So it's not going to be an easy shortcut to right into the, right into the land. You're going to have 400 years, or four generations, says both. It's a rounding number in Genesis. So 400 years, but... God would indeed judge that nation and deliver those people to get out into the land that he promised them. So 400 years off into another land, being slaves, being afflicted, and then God's going to bring them out. All right? Let's fast forward again. Exodus 2. 640 years later, around 1500 BC, Moses is born in Egypt under a tyrannical pharaoh. We know this. The pharaoh says, hey, the Hebrew people are getting way too large up in Goshen. We're going to have to kill them. This is, a, this is a potential threat to my kingdom, so get rid of them. Moses' parents, seeing that the boy was beautiful, as verse 23 says, 11.23 says, we're not doing that. We're going to exercise some faith in what God has said, and we're not going to kill that baby. That's ridiculous. Instead, we're going to hide him for three months. And then we'll put that baby in the Nile and leave him in God's hands. Well, it's perfect because he does just so happen to, rot, to float right up to Pharaoh's daughter. And you might think, why in the world wouldn't Pharaoh's daughter kill the baby? You know, it's a Hebrew. Well, you know, for different religious reasons, it could have been a, uh, it could have been a, I understand this spot to be holy. I'm going to worship. The Nile was extremely, um, almost deified. It was worshiped because it brought all the fertility and all the life. So Pharaoh's daughter just happens to stumble, stumble across Moses says, okay, I'm going to keep this baby. And God has a bit of a sense of humor because then for the next three or four years, Pharaoh's daughter can't breastfeed the baby. So lo and behold, who gets to? Oh, Moses' mom. That's amazing, you know. (laughs) So, man, silver lining. God is good all the time. So fast forward 40 years later. We're still in Exodus 2. Exodus 2 has a lot, actually. (laughs) So we're still in Exodus 2. Moses is now an adult. He's been raised in the Egyptian pharaoh's court, Egyptian royalty court. And he has been, he's probably very busy. Ancient Egyptian royalty were extremely busy. There were tacticians doing a lot. But what else he had was extreme pleasure, extreme privilege, extreme prestige. He had everything going for him. If this life was it, There is no way you're doing anything to sacrifice that cushy position, all right? So, Moses goes to see the Hebrew people up in Goshen. And lo and behold, he sees an Egyptian cruelly beating this Hebrew man, his people. And now he has to make a decision. This is no humanistic decision like, oh, don't be bad to people. That's not what's going on here. Let me tell you four things that are probably going on. Moses, one, realizes that he is a Hebrew. That was not hidden from him. 
Moses, too, likely realizes, with all the other Hebrew people, that it has been about 390 years since Jacob came to Egypt. Why is that significant? Because that deliverance that was promised in the Abrahamic covenant, that's getting really close. That's getting really close. He also, Moses also realizes that he is uniquely equipped and provided for with power, understanding, street cred, I guess you'd say, to say, I can deliver these people out of here. And that might be speculation, but Acts 7, Stephen basically says that very thing. He says, Moses, Stephen gives a huge sermon in, in Acts 7 and says, Moses went to his people expecting that they would embrace him, that deliverance would be brought by his hand. So there's a lot going through Moses' mind right now. But the question is, do you keep the cushy Egyptian life or do you give it all up to associate with Yahweh's people and Yahweh's promises? Keep the cushy life, give it up to be mistreated with Yahweh's people for the sake of Yahweh's promises. And to which the rest of the world goes, why in the world would you do anything except option A? That's absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely illogical. Why would you give up your royalty? Why would you give up your conveniences, your food, your friends, your pleasure for a God you've never met? The burning bush hasn't happened yet. It's ridiculous. Moses, why in the world would you do that? I know what it is, and you do too. He sees something that other people do not see. There is an unobserved reality that he is absolutely certain of. Hebrews 11, verse 26, our next verse, says this. Here's why you'd make that change. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. How would you do that? For he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. And a brief comment on the reproach of Christ. I think that a lot of people can get stumble over that. And you, you're getting convicted. It's feeling good. Oh, God, you're really convicting me. And then reproach of Christ. Does that mean like he knew who Jesus was? And you get all off a little bit. Let me just explain that real quick. Listen, if you're suffering for God's kingdom program, then you're suffering on behalf of God's king. That's all that's saying. All right? It's the same as suffering for the king in the New Testament as it is a suffering for God, Yahweh, God's kingdom program in the Old Testament. Okay? But he was looking to the reward. What reward? Immediate context, he was looking towards national uh, deliverance. A hope, of re- a hope of redemption for that nation, to get where they were supposed to go, and to f- be God's people. He might have also been thinking of the reward of the hope of redemption that was promised in Genesis 3. There's good evidence that these records of these earlier chapters in Genesis are verbal records that are being passed down amongst people, amongst God's people, before even Israel gets inaugurated in Exodus 19 and 20. And he was seeing that the fact that if I want a reward, an eternal reward is better than a temporary, right? 
the only one who can provide any kind of eternal reward is going to be an eternal God. That's Genesis 1 we were talking about. See, Hebrews 11.25 says that the pleasures Moses is about to give up are fleeting. They're fleeting. They're temporary. They'll fly away. Not eternal. If sin makes you stupid, and it does, that's a favorite uh, passage, that's a favorite quote from Dr. Doug Bookman, sin makes you stupid, well then faith in God's promises must make you absolutely brilliant. Because if Moses' unobserved reality is indeed true, if his unobserved reality that he believes in is true, and it is, then there's nothing that he could give up in this life that would be too much. Nothing. Nothing. We're talking eternal reward. Tiny temporary sacrifice. But listen, the second that he stops believing in that reality, the second that he stops looking to that reward, the second he loses faith, then no fleeting pleasure is going to be worth giving up. None. Not even a little one. And definitely not the wealth of Egypt. Now I want to take a step back just for a moment. We're in the weeds with Moses, right? And you might think, we're spending a lot of time, but I want you to feel the weight of what his decision is. But before we continue on and figure out what in the world this has to say to you, I want to emphasize what the purpose of the book of Hebrews is actually all about. And it's going to start to make sense. Okay? Many people... Many people think that when they read through Hebrews that it's about... It's a theology textbook. Because you hear about... You hear outlines something like Jesus is better than this, better than that, better than this. And that is amen true. Amen and amen. Those are things that are so, so true. But what's going on is the author of Hebrews who many suspect is Paul. We're not getting into that right now. Sorry. <laughs> the author of the Hebrews is writing to Jewish converts to Christianity. The early church, there are a group of Jews who said, yes, I believe the Messiah has come, and that is Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ. He's the one. Fast forward a little bit, now they're under some persecution. People are getting martyred. They're getting threatened. Judaizers abound. National Israel, unbelieving Israel abounds. And they are feeling some persecution. And the temptation to reject Jesus and return to Judaism is becoming more and more appealing. That's what this book is indeed about. Listen, he's trying to point these Jewish people to these glorious unseen truths, these glorious unseen realities of this person that they have accepted so that they do not apostatize. So that when the persecution comes, he's emphasizing, let me give you a clearer picture of who we're talking about here. Let me give you a clearer picture of the eternal reward that's coming. Let me give you a clearer picture of who this Jesus is that you have initially accepted, initially given your life to. So that when persecution does come, severely to the point of shedding blood that hasn't happened yet at the time of writing. 
They are going to be ready to give up everything just like Moses did for the eternal reward in Jesus Christ. So like I had said earlier, most people think that this is a, a theology book as if you know, the Jerusalem Seminary just needed a better uh, systematic theology. Here's something about Jesus. Here's another fact about Jesus. Oh, here's a fact about Jesus. Oh, that's great. Those are amazing. Like I said, I'm not disparaging theology. I'm not disparaging the glorious truths that we find in Hebrews. But listen, that's not what that book is originally intended for his audience to hear. It is, it is but now it's going to push him on to do something. He was writing because these Hebrew converts, these Jewish converts, are getting hammered. And the only hope for them to be able to uh, reject the fleeting pleasures of apostasy and endure the reproach of Christ is for them to be able to see Jesus Christ. It's for them to be able to see that unobserved reality. I need that picture. I need it. Look back. We'll do a crash course through Hebrews real quick. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this. Therefore, we must pay attention, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Why does he say that? Before that, he said, Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus, how is Jesus greater than the angels? Because he's divine. He is God himself. Therefore, don't drift away. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be, any evil, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Before that, he said, Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. The law, are you kidding me? We're talking about Moses today. Jesus is greater than him? Yeah, of course. Therefore, take care. Don't fall away like they did in the wilderness. Chapter 4, verse 11. Jesus, Jesus has a better Sabbath rest. Therefore, Strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What disobedience? The disobedience of the Israelites in the wilderness. Jesus is the greater, provides a greater Sabbath rest. Keep on going. Keep on enduring. Keep on chasing after. Don't fall away. Chapter 4, verse 14, a few verses down. Jesus is a greater high priest. Since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens... Let us hold fast our confession. Don't give it up. Hold fast that confession. Verses 10, chapter 10, verse 19. Whew, we got a lot to cover in that one. <laughs> Skip like four chapters. Jesus is a greater high priest. His priesthood is better. His covenant is better. His sacrifice is better. This sacrifice actually provides eternal security for those who believe. It can actually get you out of the mess we're in, this world. It can actually bring forgiveness of sins, not like the, goat, the blood of bulls and goats. Therefore, since I told you all these amazing things about Jesus, whom you said you believed in, let me tell you a therefore. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, his flesh, not animals. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, 
for he who promised is faithful. This unseen reality that we're telling you about, Hebrews, you Jewish converts, is real, and it's not going away. He who promised is faithful. Don't apostatize. Don't run away. Don't fall. Don't fall. Verse 35, chapter 10, verse 35, because there's also greater judgment. Since there's greater judgment, far more than the judgment for breaking the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, therefore, do not throw away your confidence that we have through this great high priest. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, a great reward. For you have need of endurance. There it is. You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. That eternal reward, that unseen reality, it's coming. It's coming. Temporary treasure or eternal pleasure. That's easy. That's easy. Look at verse 26 and verse 27 of chapter 11. Moses, consider the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And look to the next verse. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him as who, invis- who is invisible. Looking to the reward, seeing him who is invisible. Looking and seeing, looking and seeing. He's observing this unobservable reality, this glorious reality of who Christ is, of what, who God is, and what he's promised. This eternal God who can provide eternal reward. And I, honestly, I don't know who is all in this room right now. I mean, I know I can see you, but <laughs> I don't know where you are with the Lord. If you have failed to see Jesus Christ as more than just a guy written about in this old leather-bound book, Do not leave this room without seeing better. Listen, those Jewish converts who heard this message originally, they did not need better, they did not need to clear up their circumstances. They needed to clear up their view of Christ. And listen, we're all in the same boat. But if you have not seen Jesus at all as lovely, as amazing, if you have not had this faith, if you have not trusted in this unobserved reality, do not leave this room. You don't even have to understand all the atonement and all this other stuff we talked about. We'll get there, all right? Lean over to somebody and say, I've been professing to be a Christian my whole life. Can you tell me what in the world this is about? Because this guy's faith seems way more crazy and way more radical than I was, I've been growing up thinking. Do not delay. Come talk to me. Come talk to anybody, okay? <clears throat> but listen, for those of us who have seen this glorious Jesus Christ. It means a lot more than just endure persecution. If we just take the initial audience and say, ha, we're we're the initial audience, then we could say, when persecution comes, endure. And we'd all go out and say, okay, well, I'm glad persecution's not here right now. But it says more than that. I will say, though, I mean, the current nature of the current climate of this country might mean that you might need to dust this message off sooner than later. But nevertheless, it does say more than endure persecution. 
So we talked about why this text was given to the audience. We talked about the universal truths, but then why does it matter for you and for me in this room, in this building? Well, listen, the universe, this truth that applies to us today can be summed up in this way. Every painful circumstance, every pleasurable experience, every anxious thought is an opportunity for you and for me to turn from Christ or to turn to him in faith. Every pleasurable experience, every painful circumstance, every anxious thought is an opportunity to turn away from Christ and look to this temporal world or to turn to Christ and say, I I need you more. I need you more. It's because our sinful flesh will will use whatever it can to hijack our trust in God's promises. It will use whatever it can, whether it be pleasure or pain. And like I said earlier, we need to see the glorious truth of Jesus Christ. That's why in chapter 12, verse 2, it says, 1 and 2, it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Listen, that passage, 12, verse 1 and 2, is telling us that this whole chapter 11, including our passage about Moses, it is saying a lot more than just don't apostatize under persecution. It's saying, hey, given all those guys who didn't even receive the promises of who Christ was, the fulfillment, we on the other side of the cross have the more clear revelation. Therefore, get rid of the sin. Therefore, get rid of the encumbrances. So let me tell you about when there's an opportunity to turn from Christ or to turn to him. When I walk into a new room at seminary, I don't know these students, but man, I'm feeling the temptation to say, ooh, I want them to know how funny and smart I am. I want them to realize that I come from Cornerstone Bible Church where we preach the word expositionally for an hour, all right? <clears throat> this is a big deal. I want you to know who I am. Now, you wouldn't say that, but your heart maybe kind of throws it in a conversation here, throws it in there. I want you to know who I am. Because all I have is the temporal pleasure of you saying, wow, you're great, Thomas. I have no eternal reward, so I need the reward I can get right now in that moment. Or when I come home from work, and now it's time to do my real job, which is minister to my wife and my, do- and my daughter, I can say, man, I could escape. I could, watch, I could read articles online. I could watch YouTube videos. I don't know. I could, I could do all kinds of things to escape from my responsibilities, the, the joyful responsibilities of caring for my family because this is all I got. This temporary world's all I got. I got to save it. Got to savor it. Turn from Christ, turn to Christ. That's an opportunity. Perhaps maybe you're the only one amidst all of your friends who is still maybe unmarried. Everyone's getting married. You've been to 12 weddings this year. And now you're like, I could let this bitterness dwell up because I don't have my temporary pleasure. My temporary kingdom is all I have. And if I don't have it based on what I have defined good, then I will be miserable because this is all there is. And that bitterness is going to pop up in every single situation over the years. Turn from Christ, turn to Christ. 
Christ, there's a better reward coming. Whether I'm single or not, I'm getting that reward, and it's way better than anything this world has to offer. What about pleasurable experiences, though? What about when you come home from a vacation and the first thought you, is, you have is, when do I get to go on vacation again? <laughs> or you have an amazing meal or an amazing cup of coffee and you're just thinking, man, I just, man, when do I get to have that again? This is all I have. This, this temporary pleasurable world's all I have. I gotta get that again. Now, all of my efforts, all of my energies, all of my thoughts are not geared towards this glorious person of Jesus Christ. They're all geared towards, when do I get that next cup of coffee? When do I get to go back on vacation? Oh, pleasurable experiences. Pleasurable experiences, painful circumstances. You find out you have a miscarriage. Or you find out you have a chronic condition. That's, that's going to last the rest of your life. This temporary world is all there is. You're going to be a wreck. You're going to be a wreck. And you'll do everything you can to safeguard that kingdom. Because this temporary world is all we have. That's not true. Turn from Christ, turn to Christ. Those are the opportunities. This passage shows us something about what sin does to us. It covers the eternal realities that we know to be true based on what God has promised. And now, whether I'm being persecuted or not, whether I should go to be a missionary or not, every situation I encounter is an opportunity to live out what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell his congregation or his people. Look to Jesus Christ. Throw off the sins. Throw off the encumbrances. How do you do that? You believe in this eternal God. You believe in his eternal promises. Listen, every time you have those situations, which happen about 18,000 times every second, you can choose to sustain your own kingdom or let your king sustain you. Sustain your own kingdom, let him sustain you. Those are the options. You know, C.T. Studd did have it right. The honor will not last. The cricket will not last. The world will not last. Christ, God, his promises do last. If you believe that, if you have that faith, make it look like something. By faith, go and do a lot of great things that are perfectly in alignment with the truth of God's promises, the truth of God's word, and the glorious reality of Jesus Christ.